by thy mercy deliver us. God's mercy is good because life gets messy, doesn't it? Life gets messy because of sin. Life gets messy because of unrepentant sin. Numbers chapter 16 is messy, filled with unrepentant sin, and it is filled with revolt that is revolting. Some parts of scripture we come to have feel-good accounts, happy endings, resolution, but number 16 is not really happy. There is little to celebrate and doesn't make many top 10 lists for scriptures for a pick-me-up. Although perhaps in the end, we may see that it ought to, because it is true, and it is one of the truest glimpses into the revolting heart, but all the, also the hard, merciful work that God must do to conquer us, that we might see it and be transformed by it. Let's go before the Lord before we hear it. Our Lord, as we again return to you, We have worshiped in song and now we worship in study and are glad that you are a God of revelation who reveals yourself to us. And in so doing, you also reveal ourselves to us and reveal our great need of your mercy. In this very true account of the rebellion in Israel so long ago, help us to see ourselves and to see a rescue in Christ. Send your Holy Spirit now to bear witness to the reading and proclamation of your word as we pray also for the preacher who is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, Numbers chapter 16 is rather long. It's 50 verses, but it's one cohesive narrative. And so that we don't get lost in the midst of it, Uh, do want to read it in three parts so that we might see the power play and then see the trial by fire and then finally see the help from the holy uh, or from the high priest. So let's start with verses 1 through 14 and the power play. Listen to God's word from Numbers chapter 16. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and An, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, in the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put fire and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle 
and to stand before the community and minister to them. He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Liah, but they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert? And now you also want to lord it over us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you gouge out the eyes of these men? No, we will not come. This is known as Korah's rebellion. At least that's what Jude calls it in his one chapter letter at the end of the Bible or near the end of the Bible. Jude, talking about godless men who are also false teachers in his own setting, likens them to these godless men of the past. Jude writes, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. It's kind of like the same thing that you do when we call someone who is evil, and especially an evil leader, we call them a Hitler. This rebellion goes down in history so that godless men who are false teachers are likened to those who were part of Korah's rebellion. Verse 2 then describes the rebellion by saying that Korah, with others, became insolent They took men and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. Isn't that interesting? This isn't a ragtag group. It isn't the rabble. They are well-known appointed community leaders. They are the chosen leaders of the congregation. This is the session. It's the presbytery. And they are rising up against Moses and Aaron. And they come then as not as individuals, but as a group. They claim to oppose Moses and Aaron. Now, in polity procedure, the majority rules. 250 versus two means Moses and Aaron, you're voted out. Their beef is essentially the same as Miriam's back in chapter 14. They say that the whole community is holy, every one of them, the Lord is with them. So why then do you, Moses and Aaron, set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? That seems like a legitimate question, especially because we know leaders who have set themselves above the congregation as though they are more holy, more special, more called, and that everyone should submit to them. And when there is disagreement, a majority vote shows who's right. And that works most of the time. But what happens when the majority is wrong? Very wrong. And so when we read this story, we want to liken ourselves to Moses and Aaron, standing up against the majority who is wrong. We think of ourselves as Moses and Aaron, being opposed when we, who are opposed when we didn't do anything wrong. We put ourselves in Moses and Aaron place, and that is the nature of Korah's rebellion wanting to be in the place of Moses and Aaron. We are not Moses and Aaron. We are the rebellious. And that's because Moses and Aaron foreshadow Christ. The revolt here is not so much against Moses 
but against Aaron as the high priest, and Aaron who also foreshadows Jesus as the great and final high priest. And so notice the first thing that they do in the face of this revolt. Verse 4, when Moses heard this, he fell face down. Moses didn't rise up further. He didn't puff himself up. He fell face down. In humility and in prayerful intercession, his response to Korah is essentially, let's take this to the Lord, along with warning to them. In fact, all of those verses, Moses is warning them over and over to stop the rebellion or face the consequences. In this narrative, Moses and Aaron give us a glimpse of Christ and we're to see ourselves and those who rebel, wanting to put ourselves in the power position and often refusing to hear calls for repentance. It's why the same phrase is used in verse 3 and verse 7. The rebellion says to Moses in verse 3, you have gone too far. And Moses' response to the rebellion in verse 7 is, you have gone too far. They think Moses has gone too far by making himself special. Moses says they've gone too far by wanting to be made more special. And so verse 8, Moses says to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? They've already been chosen to carry out special things on behalf of the Lord to lead his people, but they want more. Think about the movie The Matrix when the oracle says to Neo rhetorically, what do all men with power want? More power. If we're honest, we all want more power. We don't like what leaders are doing, and so we say to ourselves, if I were the boss, here's what I would do. In Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, he likens this event of Moses to the Sanhedrin's rejection of Jesus. He says, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? And the Sanhedrin had said to Jesus, who made you ruler and judge? We know the answer to that. God made him ruler and judge. But we don't want others to be ruler and judge. We want to be ruler and judge. And if we're really honest, we don't even want God to be ruler and judge because we are so often dissatisfied with how he does things from our perspective. Now, revolts start out of frustration. Sports fans who are upset at a losing season call for coaches to be fired and players to be traded. Politicians blame economic difficulties on the incumbent so they can win his seat. And there are times when certain personnel or systems need to be changed, but most of the time, revolts are just revolting. We can understand it. They're in the desert. It's a frustrating time, but it's not a time for revolt. It's a time to surrender to the Lord. When we think of ourselves as ruler and judge, the ones who are in the right, smarter than everyone else, we lose perspective. Listen to how far afield the thinking of Dathan and Abiram are in verse 13. You have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey, and moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. They are calling Egypt, where they had been slaves for 400 years, calling that 
the land of milk and honey, calling that the paradise. And they are accusing Moses of failing to lead them into the land of promise as promised. They're blaming all of this on Moses. They take no responsibility for the rebellion of the people that have kept them out of promised land. Ah, the blame game, right? We are all very good at playing the blame game. Here they blame Moses when he's not the reason the community has failed. Moses did nothing wrong. They had all blown it. But now they want to blame Moses because otherwise they would need to humble themselves. And that takes us to verses 15 to 35. And though they've been warned, here is the trial by fire. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each man took his censer, put fire and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, God of the spirits of all mankind, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses got up, went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrances to their tents. Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. In verse 15, we're told that Moses is angry. It's one of those occasions that we see a righteous anger. And in his anger, he did not sin. And then we see this trial by fire, everyone bringing a censer. 
and standing at the entrance to the tabernacle. And I think about them standing there with their censers. I'm thinking about the show Survivor because everybody in my family watches it. I stopped years ago. But if, uh, if you've not watched Survivor or any of it, you're one of the three people, I suppose, on the planet who's never seen it. But in every episode, everyone has this torch. And when they go to tribal council, they're told that as long as your torch is lit, you're still in the game. But as you get voted out, your torch is snuffed out. Here, it's a little bit different than that. But as they stand there with their torches, standing before the Lord, guilty. And you're going to know pretty quickly that you're guilty, which is why people don't come before the Lord when they're guilty. People will oppose the church. They'll oppose leadership. They'll oppose Christians. But you're not going to go before the Lord and oppose him face to face. Well, we all will someday. There will come a day when all stand before the judgment throne of God, and it will not go well for the person who opposes God. The rebellion claimed the whole community is holy. We're all equal. And there's a measure in which that is true. But it's not the question of equality. It's a question of divine calling that God had divinely called and appointed Moses and Aaron to their place. Again, it's a foreshadowing of Christ who would be put in that place. So for Moses and Aaron, it doesn't so much mean that they're more holy. Likewise, a pastor or elders or deacons are not more holy, but God has simply called us to serve in this way. And such a calling can lead to arrogance. We've certainly seen that happen. It can also lead to jealousy. And we see that happen as well. And that's what this account is an example of, that jealousy. The whole community is holy, but when standing before the holy God, we are to be humbled together. And we definitely see a separation of those who are truly surrendering to the Lord and those who are not. And so verse 20, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. Now notice again, Moses' incredible response in verse 22. Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, God of the spirits of mankind, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? This is now a second time that we see Moses intercede on behalf of the whole community. Back in chapter 14, the Lord had said, I'm going to strike them down, the whole community, with a plague and destroy them, and I will make you, Moses, into a greater nation stronger than they. And Moses, with more concern about the name of the Lord than the name of Moses, interceded before the Lord, asking for him to forgive the community, to forgive that rebellion, and indeed the Lord forgave them. So here again, Moses intercedes, asking that God in mercy would spare the community for the sins of her leaders. And in this case, Korah is recognized as the one man whose sin initiated the whole revolt. Lord, will you be angry at the entire assembly when only one man sins? Now consider the gospel in that reality. The gospel says, O Lord, Will you pour out your anger on one man who has never sinned in order to save the entire assembly? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one man Korah had sinned and as a result, the entire assembly had fallen away and all were were guilty. 
in Christ, the one man who never sinned. And so his righteousness extends to the entire assembly. And so the Lord shows mercy to the community because of the intercession of Moses pointing to that intercession of Christ. And the city tells the assembly to move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And you don't even need to read the rest to realize that it's not going to go well for them. God's justice is never easy to watch, especially when we are distant from it. But God's justice is something we know to be right, even when we're close to it. There's a reason that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are in this revolt together. They all live on the south side of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Remember that the priests all camped around the four sides of the tabernacle, that tent of meeting between the tabernacle and the 12 tribes. So Moses and Aaron and those with them, the priests, camped on the east side. The Gershonites camped on the west side. The Merorite priests camped on the the north side. And the Kohathite priests camped on the south side. The Kohathite priests had the highest honor after Moses and Aaron. They carried the holy furnishings, the holy articles of the tabernacle. And Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were all Kohathites living together on the south side. And so you can imagine how this revolt started. Someone, probably Korah, started mouthing off about the fact that they were all going to die in the wilderness and never make it to the promised land. And someone else suggested that if they were in charge, we'd already be there. And they all begin to feed off each other. And no one stepped in to stop them and suggest that this was a rebellion against the Lord and that the sin of their heart and the sin of their words was turning into a sin of action that is revolting. So they are all guilty together. Those who initiated the revolt, those who joined in, and those who were silent and did not call it out. People often ask, if God is so good and powerful, why doesn't he do something about whatever particular sin or misery exists? We say that because there's a sense in which we want God's justice. But we also want and need God's mercy. So we say, God, destroy all the drug dealers. But you know what would be better is if you conquer them by your mercy that they become followers of you. God, destroy all the sex traffickers, but better yet, convert them to be followers of you. But I really want you to destroy them. I know I should pray for mercy, but I just really want them destroyed. Destroy them according to your wisdom, but destroy them by justice or mercy. In this case, we see that God's threat of judgment is immediately followed by the swift and comprehensive judgment. Verse 31 As soon as Moses had finished speaking, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, and all Korah's men and all their possessions. Washing God's righteous wrath on the impenitent is a solemn warning to the rest of the community. That's why there's the public stoning that we read about in chapter 15. And that public stoning, the the old days of public hangings, that same idea of a warning to the community when they see uh, the wicked who are punished. Our stomach has grown weak for such things because it seems like we're not showing mercy. But the impenitent, even 
not just for menial sins, but the unrepentant, those who've been repeatedly warned and who continue in revolting acts. A solemn act of judgment is often good for the whole community. And what we see here is rather than the whole community perishing, it is a small fraction of people who receive God's judgment and the masses received mercy. And so that takes us to verses 36 to 50 and the help from the high priest. The Lord said to Moses, tell Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, to take the censers out of the smoldering remains, scatter the coals some distance away, for the censers are holy, the censers of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. Hammer the censers into sheets to overlay the altar, for they were presented before the Lord and have become holy. Let them be assigned to the Israelites. So Eleazar, the priest, collected the bronze censers brought by those who had been burned up, and he had them hammered out to overlay the altar as the Lord directed him through Moses. This was to remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition, to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the glory cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it along with fire from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, for the plague had stopped. Aaron, as the high priest, and the high priest descendants of Aaron point to the final great high priest, Jesus Christ. In fact, I'd encourage you this week is to go back and reread this passage and to read the name Jesus every time you see Moses and Aaron. What Korah and his followers attempted to do was to put themselves into the position of Christ. We want to take Jesus' place, and that is a great rebellion against the Lord. And you would think that the solemn warning in the form of the ground swallowing up the leaders of the revolt would be enough to deter further revolt. But the revolting heart is extreme. And so verse 41, the next day, The whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. There is still no admission of guilt. There is still no ownership of sin. There is still no humbling of themselves. There is still only blame shifting, blaming the only people who are innocent in all of this, Moses and Aaron. Remember again, Moses and Aaron foreshadow Christ in this way. Moses and Aaron save the community. They seek to save the community. Moses and Aaron seek the Lord in every step they take. Moses and Aaron seek to rescue the very people who continue to grumble against them. 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in verse 42, when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it, the glory of the Lord appeared. Here we see the assembly, guilty of the very thing that destroyed the leadership, opposing Moses and Aaron, rebelling against the Lord, and the Lord is once again righteously ready to destroy the whole community. In verse 45, the Lord says, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And the wrath of God in the form of the plague goes forth. And once again, Moses and Aaron intercede on behalf of the community. They fell face down, and then Moses directs Aaron to offer incense, the symbol of offering atoning prayers of intercession. And in verse 48, we see Aaron, the great high priest, in one of the most visually stunning moments in all of redemptive history. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. Jesus stands between the living and the dead and stops the plague of God's righteous wrath from consuming us all. Jesus himself absorbed the plague of God's wrath to rescue us. We deserve nothing but the wrath of God, but God made him who had no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. May that truth set us free. Amen.